Bible reading this evening is taken from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This can be found on page 1025 of your Pew Bibles. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiash. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well on in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of their righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words 
and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who, said, who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder, does Jesus fascinate you? There are very few people who are not fascinated by Jesus. There are very few people who outright deny the existence, the historical existence of Jesus. There are plenty who try to deny who he was, the supernatural aspect, so to speak, the, the classical Jesus of faith. Lots of people try to deny that. But in relation to the fact of Jesus, a man called Jesus, X number of years ago, walked on this earth. Loads of people write in fascination of Jesus. Loads of people who aren't Christians write in fascination of Jesus. Yaroslav Pelikan, who is a well-known historian, says this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Get that. If you this evening just want to dismiss Christianity, it's hard to because for 20 centuries he has been the dominant figure. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? The former emperor of France, Napoleon Bonaparte. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there's no possible terms of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. But of course, not everyone is as positive. You may be familiar with this bloke, Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion and The Selfish Gene. And actually what he does to Jesus, he does in The Selfish Gene. You'll see in a second. He says, nobody knows who the four evangelists, that is the four gospels writers. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke being the third we have in our Bible. Nobody knows who they are, but they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history but was simply rehashed from the Old Testament because the gospel makers were devoutly convinced that the life of Jesus must fulfill Old Testament prophecies. It is even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported historical case, that Jesus never lived at all, as has been done by, amongst others, Professor George A. Wells of London University in a number of books, including Did Jesus exist. Unfortunately, five years later, Professor G.A. Wells retracted everything he had written, ever published. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Seemingly to Richard Dawkins, Richard himself is not 
retracted his own statements. What he has done to Christianity is what he has done in terms of the human person. We are altruistic. Do you know what that means? We are concerned for the other. And for atheists, that's one of the difficult things to explain. We're concerned for the other. We give blood in order to help other people. We open the door. We are careful on the road as we drive, or most of us are anyway. We are concerned for the other. And that is really, really, really difficult for the atheist to explain away. In terms of altruism, what Richard Dawkins has done, and he's done this to Christianity and this talk of whether Jesus exists or not, we, we, we look after the other because that's how we would want to be treated. We possess the selfish gene. It's a very convenient explanation. It sounds appealing, doesn't it? But fundamentally, it's wrong. It has been proved such. When it comes to this issue of whether Jesus Christ is actually who the Bible claims he is, is actually who Dr. Luke wrote about, well, Richard Dawkins may want to say this to Luke. Nobody knows who you are, but you almost certainly never met Jesus. Much of what you wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history, but was simply rehashed from the Old Testament. The Old Testament's the bit of the Bible. Those 39 books, they're written before the New Testament. All the books written before Jesus came. Rehashed from the Old Testament because the gospel makers, you look, were devoutly convinced that the life of Jesus must fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Now, the book of Luke opens with a statement that should make you set up and think, well, possibly Richard Dawkins has it right. Possibly read something in Richard Dawkins here. It's a rather convenient, I think, way to dismiss Jesus, though, I would argue. Anyway, let's have a look at what Luke does. And I want to see if by the end of this evening, by the end of this talk, you agree with him. Or is it just too easy, an explanation away? Let's listen to what Luke says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the Gospels, probably the most explicitly we have why the gospel has been written. We get an explanation at the end of John's gospel, why John wrote his gospel, but we get a very firm explanation as to why Luke has endeavored to make things clear to his friend, most excellent Theophilus, who is probably a wealthy patron who helped Luke, enabled him to write this. And the basic reason that he has written is to provide certainty. Now, how can you say, Trevor, Christianity is a matter of faith? How can you say certainty? Surely it's a matter of what goes on inside you. Surely it's a matter of how your convictions go, how you're that feeling on the inside. That's true spirituality, isn't it? Well, Luke would say, no, you can be certain. In fact, I'm writing, writing to help you in your certainty, dear Theophilus. He says that right at the very end. You may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Well, what is the recipient, Theophilus, to be certain of? Well, verse 1. And this is where Luke 
the doctor draws in the Old Testament. This is where Richard Dawkins may say, well, actually, Luke, you're just making it up. You're so committed to the thing being true. You're so committed to the Old Testament having some basis for Jesus Christ that you're just drawing all these things together and making it up. He says right at the start here, verse 1, the things that have been fulfilled, as in the things that have been predicted, as in the patterns, the shapes, the contours, the historical events that are due to happen that have all been mentioned in the Old Testament, they've now been fulfilled. That's big, I think. Just as they were handed, verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. Now, Richard Dawkins says, look, you never met Jesus, and that is likely. It is likely that most of the Gospels writers did not meet Jesus. Do you have to meet someone to write about them? Is that how biographies are written? Or do you meet someone who knows that person, the subject of the biography? In Mark's case, Gospel of Mark, it was Simon Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' close friends. Peter commissioned Mark to write his gospel to aid his mission. Matthew was commissioned by James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to aid his mission. Luke was commissioned by Paul, the evangelist to the Gentiles, to aid his mission. Paul met Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus. James was Jesus' half-brother. Peter was Jesus' mate. Luke himself, a medical doctor, is very, very careful. You'll find loads and loads and loads of the medical miracles in this gospel of Luke. So the eyewitnesses have been consulted. The servants of the Word have been consulted. Luke, aided by Theophilus, the wealth of Theophilus, has gone about buying parchment, and he's gone and interviewed and had the conversations with those who did see, those who are present for all of the things that he records. Many have been writing about them, but what he is doing is he's getting them and he's organizing them so that what is written about Jesus makes sense, so that what is written about Jesus brings certainty. So that what is written about Jesus proves that everything said about Jesus was true in the Old Testament. And be reassured, Theophilus, this is true. Certainty. Fulfillment from eyewitnesses. Certainty. It's, by the way, are you sure? You're sitting here this evening, you might think to yourself, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'm here, it's good. You know, all the things that Jeremiah said about all saints and Sunday evening uni church here are true. The welcome's brilliant. The food earlier on was fantastic. The coffee is outstanding. The music is just saxophone. <laughs> all of those things, that, that just, you're here because of those possibly. But I wonder, do you think when you're on your own, middle of the night, miserable January, February, you think to yourself, I don't feel it. I don't feel it anymore. Maybe you never did. I wonder, are you certain? Is it, is it so 
true in you that you are, well, you can say with absolute certainty, all of what is said about Jesus is true. It actually happened. Jesus really is who he said he is. Jesus really is who Luke said he is. Jesus really is who all of those bits of the Old Testament that spoke about Jesus. Is that you? Certainty. I hope over the course of these 17 weeks or so, it's a long time, over these 17 weeks or so, your certainty will grow. How can we be certain? We can be certain that Jesus really is who he said he is because the Old Testament speaks of the one who would come who would be, who would be Christ, who would be the rescuer, who is the Son of God. He's come to seek and to save the lost. How does Luke go about this? How does he do this? Well, the first thing that he draws Theophilus' eye to is the circumstances around this announcement of a birth. Now, if you start your Christmas story, if you start your Christmas, you've all been nativity plays, I'm sure. Some of you have been sheep, possibly. Some of you looking around, probably goats. Some of you may even have been the baby Jesus, as you were a baby long, long time ago. Where would you start the nativity story? Would you start it with, well, the wise men looking for a star in the east? Would you start there, or would you start with, well, I don't know. Where does Luke start his nativity story? He doesn't start it with Jesus. He starts it with another son whose birth is announced. He starts it with another set of parents who find it all a bit odd, all a bit strange. And this circumstance we read of in Luke 1, verse 5 onwards. And just by the way, Luke is very interested in historical detail. He roots things with names and times and places. And here's the first one of those where obviously he's trying to put things in an orderly direction, in an orderly fashion. I would start with Mary, the Virgin Mary. I would start there if I was writing the Nativity story. But he actually starts with Have a look, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well on years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. This circumstance is quite remarkable. Quite remarkable because it's so unremarkable. Zechariah is just an ordinary vicar in an obscure place. In fact, an elderly vicar in an obscure place. An elderly pastor who really, well, there wasn't much going for him. In this time of Herod, that's the king, Herod, who's king of Judea, this priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Now, 
The difficulty with something like this is you could rush over and miss the detail. He slows us away down, doesn't he? He doesn't bring us to the wise men and the star in the east right away. Sure, he doesn't. He slows us way down, and he makes us think. He makes us ask questions. Just what is going on? And he draws our attention to this circumstance of this priest, elderly priest, faithful elderly priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. He makes us slow down and ask ourselves the question, why this? Well, who is Zechariah? Who is Elizabeth? Who are they in the grand scheme of things? I've said insignificant, but hugely significant. They were of a line in their descendancy. They were of a line of priests, not kings, priests. Jesus came from a line of kings. Zechariah comes from a line of priests. What's the priest's job to do? The priest's job in the Old Testament is to represent God to man and man to God. They were the way through. They were the ones who preached Jesus as they preached from the Old Testament. They're the ones who, in their professional priest life, so to speak, looked after what went on in the temple. And various divisions of priests did various bits and pieces. There were some priests responsible for the sacrifices. There were some priests responsible for the outer courts of the temple. There were some who aided the priests, the Levites. So, what we have here is a priest from a line of priests, from Aaron's line. And verse 6, we learn that they're godly. They are what you'd expect a priest to be. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. That's quite a reputation to have, isn't it? It's the kind of man you'd want to be your priest. But, and here's where the darkness comes in. They had no children. Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well on in years. Not going to be fruitful. I mean, there's not going to be a, I don't know what Zachariah's last name, but there's not going to be a little, could be Johnson, I don't know, Zachariah Johnson, there's not going to be a little Johnson running around. They were barren. They'd never been a little Johnson, so to speak, a little Zachariah, a little Zach running around. Two little Zachs, actually, running around. They'd never been. Can you imagine what that feels like? For some, that is a reality. Not knowing the blessing of children. What a pain in the heart in the soul. And Zechariah and Elizabeth must have felt that deeply. I mean, the Bible had promised fruitfulness. The, the Bible, their Bible had talked about a quiver full. Their Bible had, you can imagine what it felt like, but we have honored you, God. We've lived righteously. We've lived uprightly. We serve you. I'm a priest. 
This barrenness of Elizabeth reflected the barrenness of Israel, didn't it? Israel was on the way down. Israel had lost its land. It had been bounced about through the exile, through the return. And now this nightmare of a king hurt. This barrenness of Elizabeth, this barrenness and expectancy of Zechariah, yet unfulfilled expectancy of Zechariah and Elizabeth is a kind of a metaphor, isn't it, for what was going on in Israel? They were both well on in years, advanced. That's the circumstance. This further circumstance. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving his priest, his number came up. There was some variation in what you could do as a priest. And it was only once every 10 years or so that a lot would be drawn and you'd be included in that lot and possibly your number would be pulled out of the bag or whatever it was and you would be called, Zechariah, come and do the incense offering where you'd be brought, able only that one time in the year when the sacrifices were happening, only at one time in the year to do the sacrifices, to burn the incense. He was serving as a priest. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The incense was the constant reminder of death. The constant reminder of sacrifice, blood being shed, atonement being yearned for. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. That's the circumstance. But then what happens? This is quite remarkable. There's a completion that is announced by an angel. For years, 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 they had hoped for this. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, you'd imagine, you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that someone like Zechariah who knew that this was going to happen would have been delighted. Imagine, my number came up to go into the temple. My number came up to burn the incense. That constant reminder of, God's people's sins and the necessity of atonement and sacrifice. You'd imagine that Zechariah would have, wow! Just those lines at the very end there, verse 17. What is going on? Why is this, an, this, this angel, this angel who speaks to Zechariah, quotes the Bible? In fact, quotes the last words of God of the Old Testament. From Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. You can have a look, but don't worry. It's just the, the book before the New Testament starts. Malachi, 
chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I have given at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The very last words uttered in the closing sentences of the Old Testament in 400 years of silence. And then this angel to Zechariah speaks. What does the angel do? Quite unsurprisingly, the angel just says, well, see that bit 400 years ago? That bit, you need to flick, flick back in your Bible there. He just quoted that. He just went straight back to that. Everything that's contained before, contained before Luke starts to pen, everything before Zechariah starts to swing the incense is about to be fulfilled. This Elijah-like figure is about to appear. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, a significant prophet in the Old Testament, quite a character in the Old Testament. And this Elijah who would come would be like that Elijah. But unfortunately, Zechariah who you'd expect to be entirely prepared, entirely ready, because he was righteous. He knew the Word of God, the Old Testament. He knew it all. Listen to the response. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Hang on a minute. This is the guy who had Genesis chapter 12 in the Bible. This is the guy who would have had an A-level, certainly a GCSE, an A-level, possibly a degree, maybe from Union College, in theology, possibly, biblical studies. He would have known his Bible. He would have been tested. He would have tested others. He would have known this is no bother to God. No bother barrenness in an elderly woman and the promise of a baby. No bother to God. Zechariah, you of all people should know this. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, Sarah. God gives Abraham a promise. You're going to have a child. Through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. What does Abraham say? What does Sarah say? No way. Could never happen. Zechariah, you know this. You know this stuff. But catastrophe, absolute catastrophe. The faithful, godly priest, the faithful, respecting, respectful priest is silenced. Verse 19, the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Oh, no. Nightmare. This temporary lapse in Zechariah, this temporary lapse and blindness in Zechariah has now led to dumbness. He can't speak. What catastrophe. 
Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. I mean, how long does it take to put a bit of incense? I don't know. I've never done it, but how long do you think it would take? 10 minutes, half an hour? They're checking their watches or their sundials on their arm. I have no idea what is going on there, thinking to themselves. They're completely unaware of this supernatural visitor, this visitor from outside. Aslan is on the move, C.S. Lewis might say. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them. But can you imagine? Can you imagine what he was doing? This kind of thing? Could you imagine? Could you imagine what was going on? He kept making signs to them. He remained unable to speak. Absolute catastrophe. But, good news. Verse 23, conception. When his time of service was completed, this returned home thing, where, where he lived, Hebron was where he lived, division of Abijah, they were out in the hill country. It's a long way away from Jerusalem, and it had been a number of days' journey. He had been silent that whole time. Could you imagine what he'd been thinking? When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. For five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she says. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So, is Richard Dawkins right? Has it just been made up? That's a convenient way. That's an easy way just to dismiss it. It's an easy way to say, yes, yeah, just made up. Those Christians, those gospel writers, those evangelists, so-called evangelists, well, they've just seen this and they've just written all this stuff down just to kind of make the story fit. Does that convince you? I think it's entirely unsatisfactory. Entirely unsatisfactory because loads of people would have known about this old barren woman, Elizabeth, and a sprog called John the Baptist. Elijah, like, sorry, sprog is East Belfast for child, Jeremiah, is that right? She had, I mean, easily dismissed. This stuff, maybe, the, maybe just a sore throat. Zachariah had a sore throat. That's what Richard Dawkins would say. Sore throat. How do you explain a child? In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. This Elijah-like figure, John the Baptist, appears. Now, you know, I think, that there are two sons mentioned in this chapter. Another miraculous happening, another incredible happening, another conception happening. In the sixth month, God had sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee. Gabriel's in overtime at the moment. 
a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary wasn't greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin... The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. It's a similar reaction in Mary, isn't it, as there is to Zechariah's kind of, well, dumbfoundedness. Similar reaction. How does that one turn out? Well, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Out of the catastrophe comes two sons. Out of the catastrophe are with these incredible conceptions come two sons. One, the Elijah figure, who's called John the Baptist. And then the other one, Jesus. But you Christians have just made it up. You Christians have found bits from the Old Testament and and kind of twisted the story. Really, Richard? How do you explain this? No such thing as virgin births. Impossible really, Richard? Just because you haven't experienced, does that preclude it? Does that make it impossible? You see, Luke is taking his time, filling out the details, proving and showing and proving and showing and proving and interpreting and proving and explaining. And that's what you're in for over these next number of weeks. You will get through this the real and true picture of Jesus, who he is, who he is properly, who he is, not the Jesus of your imagination, not the gentle Jesus making mild of Sunday school, not the Jesus of the stained glass window, although you can't see it because it's dark outside, not that stained glass, not the Jesus of your imagination, but the true Jesus who we access in gratitude because look, given these words by God and His Holy Spirit, has written these things down so that we can be certain. We can be certain. I trust that will be your experience over these weeks. Let's pray. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving Luke these words to write. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of certainty. We pray that we will grow 
in that certainty, seeing and knowing deeply how Heavenly Father Jesus Christ fulfilled. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.